I've gone through a lot of transformation and it's like chaotic because nothing that we knew, everything we hung on to, everything we thought we, we thought we knew, we don't. And it, it shifts and changes and it not only affects the mind, it affects the body, it affects the spirit. And uh, I, I see that a lot in my patients, but it won't happen unless you're ready to go there. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. One of the problems with having a regular meditator practice is noticing how frequently I find myself complaining. It's easy to ignore when busy with the daily stuff of life, but when sitting quietly, oh boy, the story machine really shows itself for what it is. And I'm surprised and often frustrated with how my thoughts are more full of complaint than gratitude, appreciation, or the spark of some brilliant idea. The to-do list, that damn thing is endless. And it's endless because there are all these mental nudges and nudges that start off with you need to do this, or you got to do that, or you should do blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm talking about. It's the I have to that really has my attention lately. It's had my attention. Is that little phrase seems to preface so many of the activities that I don't like, don't want to do and feel put upon because they are my responsibility. And in general, it tends to fire up a litany of further complaint. I have to. Catching that one is like pulling out a weed while it's still small and without firm roots. The I have to is the catalyst for a symphony of bad attitude and feeling put upon. And to make it worse, most of these are things that, because I made certain choices in life, they come with the territory. Changing the I have to to I get to opens up a whole different terrain. I get to write the rent check. I get to tidy up the clinic. I get to do some continuing education. I get to wash the dishes. Shifting I have to to I get to has helped me to take more responsibility for the life that I've asked for and the life I'm creating. It reminds me that I have a choice. And those choices usually bring along some responsibility that I may not like, but in the end, I'm grateful for it because it means I have the opportunity to live the life of my own choosing. And I suspect that choosing, choosing my response, recognizing that the rent checks need to be written. And since I have a lovely place to practice, it's more helpful to write it from that place of, I get this opportunity to do this. You might want to try it out for yourself. The next time you're complaining about your experience with, I have to, try switching it over to, I get to. See what happens. I want to share something with you that I recently heard on another podcast, and I found it quite helpful for waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to fall back asleep due to a busy mind. I was recently talking with a practitioner friend about having gotten a good, solid eight plus hours of uninterrupted sleep, and what a delight it was. And he said, yeah, you know, we talked to our patients about the importance of sleep, but man, a good night's sleep is easier said than done. I can relate. Sleep at times is an issue for me. And I have other practitioner friends. Yeah, our sleep isn't that good either. Swan Sao Ren Tang and Tian Wan Bu Dan aside, a good night's sleep has more moving parts than the right herbal formula. So I heard this on a podcast the other day. It's kind of a Nate Gong thing. When you wake up at night, try doing this. 
tell your brain that it's become a random number machine. It's your brain's job, instead of going through all kinds of thoughts about things you got to do, to simply generate a random number between 01 and 99. Could be 87, 42, 23, 05, 37. You get the idea. Almost like a mantra. Just let your brain come up with a random number between 01 and 99. I have found for myself, it helps with getting back to sleep in those times when the brain wakes up in the middle of the night and it wants to go over the details of what you're going to do four hours from now. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation on extra rational frameworks, vibration, music, and sound. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. 
Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one month grace period on your new Jane account. Mary Elizabeth Wakefield and Michael Angelo, welcome to Geological. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's fun to interview two people at the same time, two for one. What a deal. Is this the first time you've had two for one? It is not the first time I've had two I'm for one. I'm so I've grateful had... to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> that. I did one a little while back. It was me and three other people. You know, it was like one of those black belt things where uh... <laughs> Ron Dory. <laughs> oh, my God. That was fun. I just wondered if each had their own mic. They did because they were in separate locations. Ah. This is actually the first time I've interviewed two people sharing a microphone. Okay, there's a first. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. We'll, we'll find out. Yeah. All right. So, Mary Elizabeth Wakefield, you're a bit of a known name in our profession. Did you say no name or known name? Known name. Okay. <laughs> People have probably heard of you okay. in one way, shape, or form or the other. I am always really curious to know how people found their way to acupuncture because for most of us, it was not a first career. Mm-hmm. What I would like to know a little something about is how you got from opera to acupuncture. Ah, do you want the long form or the short form? You know, we can have any form we want because okay. we have as much time as we want on the podcast. Okay, cool. Um, I um, grew up always singing and I got into the opera field and and was singing all over the world. And, and I, I, I ended up uh, living in Tokyo for a while. And for about three years, and I did some concerts there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I had my first acupuncture treatment by a well-known Japanese acupuncturist. And I was so excited about it that I decided when I went back to New York, I would look into going to acupuncture school. How was that? Holy smokes. Wow. What happened in that treatment, if I may ask? Well, it, it, there was no pain. That was the one thing. Uh, I enjoyed the fact that uh, I felt um, what happened. I felt amazing. Uh, my chi, my energy was moving. Uh, I, I could sing better. I felt more grounded. Ah, I, yes. Sing better. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. but, but before that, I have always been exploring healing healing modalities. I, I, I became a shiatsu therapist before that, still at the same time I was singing. Uh, worked with Dr. Uh, John Upledger, the late John Upledger, mm -hmm. with the craniosacral therapy, polarity therapy, etc. So it was a natural. And um, just one always sings because it's part of the soul. It's part of our souls. All right, Michelangelo, I want to get to you in just a moment. I'm not I'm not leaving you out here. We're gonna we're gonna we're coming back around to you. Now listen, it's but, okay. I'm used to being the eye candy in in, in, in our seminars, you know. So uh, 
So, no, you know, she's the acupuncturist. Uh, I, I understand perfectly. Dude, this is this is a podcast. They can't see you. You're gonna have to be the you're gonna have to be the ear candy. That's fine. Okay. Excellent. See, so we're know, coming back. You notice how he got the attention. He he upstaged me as usual. Anyway, but continue. I am here. I'm for you. I'm right here. Okay. You say singing. You just said something about singing. It's in our soul. What about people that can't sing or don't sing or were taught? They can't sing. They long to sing. Uh, my mother was one of those people. She was told when she was a little girl that she didn't pass some sort of test, you know, of singing test. And they told her that she was uh, would never sing. She did not have a voice and forget a music career, which damaged her. Yes, of course. And it, it, a lot of people are, are told that. And actually, I think people can sing even when they don't think they can. Maybe they were told by somebody they couldn't. Uh, so she went on to become a painter instead. Aha. The creativity moves on. Yes, yes. If it can't get out through one venue, it'll get out through another outlet. Exactly. But it does, yeah. it does, it does um, open up the spirit and the the, the shin, the soul. And it was a great, for me, a fantastic way to get therapy. Because when you sing, the breath is going through your entire body. And what happens is any emotions come out. They release crying, anger, upset. And you find yourself grounded and balanced. So I never needed to go, go to therapy. I just sang. This is really interesting. I think of singing as being part of the earth element, according to our uh, wishing and just listening to you speak about singing, how it goes through you with the breath and the emotions can really flow. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, wow, I, I hadn't thought of the earth element as being this kind of conduit for the complete expression of emotion. But it, it sounds like that may be in there. Am I Am I, am I hearing this clearly? Yes, and it's very. I think it's very well said. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. But, but you're right. It is a conduit for the sound. I had a wonderful voice teacher years ago who was one of the old bel canto teachers. And she said, and, and she was uh, one of the people who fled from Cuba. The, the family years ago had a big uh, yeah, sugar cane estate and they had to leave and she was actually Cuban but she'd sung at Mila in Milano at La Scala many years ago or the great opera house and she said Maria you are a hollow bamboo you are a hollow bamboo from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head and the breath goes through you and through that comes the sound yeah yeah. Okay. I, you know, the next time I'm in clinic, I think I'll just bring that image up as I'm about to put a needle in. I think it'll help. Yeah. Are you okay? I, I think I can tell that you are an amazing acupuncturist because of the really yes, the way you are, that your questions, your 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 creative mind, the way you respond to things, the way you. Uh, uh, are receptive to new ideas, I, I, I think, as acupuncturists, and, and grounded. It's very important to um, be creative, because I think it's an art and a science. Well, it, it is an art and a science. I, I think there's no doubt about that. And in, in fact, one of the things that I've been curious about for a while now is how art and science, really two ways of being able to use our perceptive ability, got so disconnected. Why do you think that is? I don't know. 
I, I don't know. I don't know why it is. I've noticed that it is in this time that we inhabit. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you know, the work, our work of repairing the world, in a sense, is is perhaps bringing those back together. Certainly, we see that our medicine helps us to bring those back together. Absolutely. And and this new book we wrote, uh, co-authored together, Vibrational Acupuncture, where we're integrating uh, acupuncture needles with sound, with, with tuning forks, we have a chapter that discusses that very thing that you just okay. expressed. I want to get into that in just a second. But we're playing tag team here, so I want to hear from yes. the eye candy. Eye candy's ready. Trust me. I want to hear from the eye candy. There what brought is. you into this path of medicine and healing? Well, we've been together now for 27 years. We met uh, singing opera at a little festival in the Midwest. And at the time... Midwest? Where in the Midwest? Uh, Indianola, Iowa. The Des Moines oh Metro Opera Festival. Okay, that is Midwest. Yeah, very. A, yeah. a very respectable uh, summer opera festival. Uh, we've never been back, but it was <laughs> clearly destiny that, that brought us there in the summer of 1992. And um, at the time, I really was very disconnected from myself. Um, you know, uh, the only time I really remotely got grounded was when I sang, but we met and... Uh -huh. um, it was obvious to me from the beginning that Mary Elizabeth was a, a very unusual <laughs> opera singer. She seemed to have a, a profound spiritual core, which not all of them do. And uh, it was just one thing led to another. And then we've been partnering each other in a variety of ways ever since. Um, first as performers and then latterly, of course, as teachers and healers. Um, for me, it all began back in 2003. Uh, Mary Elizabeth had been investigating sound healing for a number of years, uh, looking at various tuning fork systems that were uh, available. And she had decided that she wanted to visit the people who were <laughs> calling their uh, business at that time, the Kairos Institute of Sound Healing, uh, LLC, in Northern New Mexico. And uh, she'd sort of paved the way for me by giving me their first textbook, which is called There's No Place Like Ohm. Okay. Uh, this is because OHM, O-H-M, is, is the central frequency of their sound healing system. And OHM is, uh, you know, for the record, an earth-based frequency. So she said, you know, I want to go to, to, as she said, meet the tuning fork ladies in northern New Mexico. So we made a very lengthy pilgrimage from Tucson where we were on business at the time. Uh, she was working with a certain person in an herbal company at that time. And we drove all the way up there and we met. Now, as I said, I had read the textbook and she piqued my interest because by this time, of course, I had become become an astrologer and had been an intuitive consultant for many years um, and had also investigated vocal sound healing as we both had. Mm -hmm. So so you've already had your own path that you've been following. Yeah, well, it was largely precipitated by, you know, our reconnection, you know, at that time. Uh, I realized there was a whole aspect of myself that just I simply was totally unaware of, you know, what I would call my irrational self. And that got me into doing, you know, intuitive consultations with Tarot and then fairly early on into astrology. Mm. And we taught a variety of different workshops based on those types of things. We did a whole relationship workshop based on the tarot at one point. But so in 2003, we're there in northern New Mexico. She said to me before we went, she said, oh, by the way, they have a Chiron tuning fork. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Chiron, but it's a, one of the uh, latest additions to the astrological <clears throat> symbol set, I guess you could say. It was discovered by an astronomer named Cowell back in 1975, and it's 
become to be associated by most astrologers with the wounded healer. And again, this was interesting because I'd already been working with Chiron. We both had, you know, long even before I became an astrologer. So she said, they've got a Chiron tuning fork. Let's go meet them. So we went and, you know, without, you know, wanting to make the tale longer than it already is, mm. circumstances contrived that I ended up actually co-teaching with Donna Carey, a PhD, who incidentally is writing the foreword to our book, co-teaching advanced level seminars with her because at the time there was nobody in their community who had the, the uh, combined background of astrology and classical music. And they, need, they needed someone to step in for the departure of her then co-teacher. So I stepped into the breach and that's kind of how I got into this type of sound healing. I want to hear more about this Chiron tuning fork and this ohm because I've heard of ohms. I think it has something to do with sound. Is, am I right about that? I don't know much about sound. Well, um, Om, you know, as as a chant, of course, is, has you know an ancient Hindu. Uh, of of course, but I'm thinking the was it the O H M? Yeah. Isn't that a, a technical yeah, term? Yeah, it's a, of it's, some it's, sort? a it's a um, technical term for resistance in in the sound field. But acutonics essentially took on board uh, a collection of planetary frequencies that were first calculated by a Swiss mathematician and musicologist named Hans Cousteau. And he, had, he wrote a book back in 1978 called The Cosmic Octave. And in it, he essentially laid out guidelines for, for people doing vibrational healing work with tuning forks on the points and meridians of acupuncture, even though he himself wasn't an acupuncturist. So Donna Carey and her then teaching partner, Marjorie DeMunk, picked up on this idea, ooh, it's probably 25 years ago now, and sort of recast... Cousteau's uh, frequencies into their own system, which they called acutonics. So in their system, Cousteau's earth frequency became OHM, O-H-M. Got so it. That's where, okay. that's where the name of the book comes from. No place like OHM. Okay. I want to make sure that I heard you say something correctly just a few minutes ago. You were talking about that you had not been in touch with your irrational self. Yeah, well, you talked about the, the severance of art and science. I mean, uh, and I, we both, uh, I think, would understand this in an implicit sense as being artists. Is there are many, many artists who are, are quite superbly accomplished in in their field, but they but they lack, you know, any sense of, of uh, a spiritual basis. And so, for me, you know, awakening to this this idea that there were greater realities than the ones that I had hitherto known. And, and again, the aspects of myself largely having to do with my own natural intuitive gifts and uh, other skills that I would say to you probably have been brought forward from previous lives if we're not, ju you know, jumping out of the boat and into the ocean too soon here, you know. Uh, Never soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, there's only the only, really the only way that I can account for these things because these are things that I certainly knew nothing about in a conscious sense before I became aware of them, you know, after we met. Yeah, this is, it was just, it's so delicious to hear someone talk about their irrational self as something that's valued and helpful and worth having. You know, usually you hear about people being irrational or, oh, she's irrational or that's irrational. It's considered this really bad thing. And I'm hearing you talk about it as a resource. Yes, absolutely. Oh, mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you a question. Tell us about your irrational self. Oh, God. Please give us a little bit of a background or anything that comes to mind. Oh, my goodness gracious. It seems gracious. to have, um, have, have awakened something in you or, yeah. Well, I just, I love the deliciousness 
of contradictions that really make me go, what the hell? Right. And so, I mean, just this moment ago, hearing Michael talk about his irrational self as something of value for someone like myself who grew up, you know, oldest child of oldest, yeah, oldest child of my family, middle class, you're supposed to get ahead, use your, you know, you're smart, use your brain, use your smarts. And I always felt like that was just half of the equation, right? So I've got a whole family background that says, and let's see, how do I say this? It, it, that whole, I'm going to call it non-rational because irrational has such a, uh, it's got a stigma to it. So I, I mean, at the moment, I'm liking the idea of, of like owning it. It's like, oh yeah, that part. Oh yeah, you're right. That is irrational. The way I just behaved, you're completely right totally irrational and, and like owning it instead of trying to push it off to the side. I would say that non-linear, non-logical, non-rational side is super helpful in clinic. I, I suspect one of the reasons that I've been drawn to Chinese medicine and practicing it, even though I wanted nothing ever to do with medicine as I was growing up, you know, and like right up until the point I decided to study Chinese medicine, it's like, I want nothing to do with medicine. And yet here I am 20 years later, uh, practicing it, having a podcast, having these conversations and recognizing that there is this aspect that has very little to do with logic and a lot to do with something else, but it very quickly moves into a nonverbal realm. And so I find it difficult to speak about directly. And it's also an element that I would say is alive in my clinical practice. I think um, I, I'd like to answer to that. When I'm in, in clinic, I am uh, very intuitive. I know logically what to do, but I mm. listen. I listen mm -hmm. to my patients. I test their, their energy. I use sound in my treatments. I integrate tuning forks with them. Um, I integrate with it with needles. More than that, I've learned in my many years, and I, I can't speak for you, it sounds like it, that I need to trust that, that non-knowing, that um, trust that in this moment, mm -hmm. I don't know, and things change. And then they change again. It's the constant changing. So the the um, whole idea, uh, Michael, uh, I'm learning more and more in my practice and, and in teaching and working with people and also singing is to be present, to be as present as possible, as present in that moment. And in that moment, there are many different, there are many, many different moments. And in that moment, there is an eternity. And that is, I'm not good at that all the time. We are these time-bound beings. We have this sensorium that brings in a certain amount of light, brings in a certain amount of sound, certain amount of sensation. And to everything else, we're blind through our usual senses. And yet, there's plenty going on beyond our usual senses that's out there, right? We've got instruments that can measure sounds that we can't hear. We've got instruments that can measure mm -hmm. light that our eyes can't see. So we know that, you know, from our scientific uh, technology, that there's more than our sensorium can bring in. 
My suspicion is that the human being is actually a very, very sensitive creature, like all the creatures on this planet. And there's, especially when we do get quiet enough to listen, there's things that can be heard that the ears don't hear and that the eyes don't see. Well said. I, 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 I think being receptive is something that seems to be outmoded in our society today. To be able to receive, as you said, to listen, to receive. When I work with people, I use um, the tuning forks on either side of their head and I work with the corpus callosum first and then I ground them. The corpus callosum. So now you're getting into your uh, osteopathic stuff here, huh? Or are you thinking about it differently? I, I no, I, I'm 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 more interested in, and in working with the creative, uh, uh, the emotional brain, and the nonlinear brain, and balancing them, because as you know, um, in auricular therapy, uh, in front of the tracheus cartilage, there's a corpus callosum point. So I've learned that sound, um, literally, is uh, takes in only what it needs. In other words, you can never over-treat with sound. You can over-treat with microcurrent, with acupuncture. You can over-treat. But the sound, literally, if you are over-treating, the sound will go up your arm with the tuning forks and not the, the person that you're working with is not affected by it. But I find working with that that receptive brain and that receptive nonlinear brain uh, and the, the linear brain that is more young, uh, finding that balance, I... I find in balancing that with having them listen to the sound, and I can tell by either side of the ear and listening to these ohm forks that one side will be absorbed more than the other. And then I realize, oh, well, the right side was absorbed. Something's going on with the left brain, or they're tired, or they've had, they've been very logical the last many days that they've been working, or they, they um, long for quiet or serenity. Uh, if it's the opposite, um, they, they long for creativity. They long for intuition, to be more receptive. And I actually, and Michelangelo and I have worked on this together, we can actually balance that. And the, the, the whole treatment, the entire acupuncture treatment is different after that. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I've got a couple questions about this. This is tasty. And th this is great because I'm this like 
guy from the Midwest. So, well, I'm a girl yeah, from the Midwest. Well, but you've been doing this vibrational healing for a bit, up to and including all this singing that you've been doing. I was taught that I was not able to mm. sing in the sixth grade. I am too. It really pisses me off. Really, I'm sorry. That's not true. Uh, I, I believe it's not true, but there. But working through that's another issue. We have to um, get together, all three of us, and have a forking session. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that we can get you singing, and your corpus callosum balanced, and uh, you know. Anyway, I'm, I'm going I'm to take you up on that invitation. Okay. That sounds great. I, I, I'm sorry, I side I sidetracked you. Go ahead and what questions do you have? Well, you know, there are no sidetracks in a podcast. It's all just a conversation. Okay, so I don't have much experience with sound healing. Mm -hmm. I got my own issues. In fact, I, as we're having this conversation, I realized, oh, there's a part of me that just might have issues with sound, period, given some earlier experience. But that's, that's stuff to work on another time. I, I'm interested in your experience. You were talking about using tuning forks on either side of the head, working with the corpus callosum. And if I heard you correctly, you can feel whether the sound is going in, whether the sound is going up your arm. So it's possible in the treatment to both be treating and I'm going to say diagnosing, you know, being attentive to what's actually happening at the same time. You've got two things going on. Is this true? Yes, absolutely. Because when they're listening to these forks, I can feel the vibration in my hands. That's why they're so wonderful with blind, uh, uh, people who are blind or deaf even, but they, they, I can feel that that a vibration uh, stops on one side. They can hear it. I can feel it because I'm holding the forks. And I ask them, which side can you hear it on one side more than the other? And they usually tell me, and it's exactly what I've experienced. It's very rare it isn't. And I do that three times, three being the number of completion, three, sixes, nines, Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, if I have an issue with, let's say, the right side is stopped, they can't hear in the right ear, they can't, the, the, the resonance is stopped, I literally put that fork on the corpus callosum point in front of the tragus cartilage and the other one on byway to connect with the crown. There are two of them. We work with two forks. After doing that several times, I can feel that it's coming online. I have them listen again. And then it either balances or not. Sometimes they balance themselves with just listening. But that changes the entire, once you've got that balance and then grounding the person, let's say at kidney one, you have uh, got the person very receptive. I take pulses before I start, do my diagnostics. And then after using the tuning forks, I take the pulses again. Yeah, it's always helpful, isn't it? It's changed. They're yeah. evened out. They're more even. The yeah. um, the lung pulse is balanced. It's not so superficial, et cetera. Okay. Michael wants to say something. Uh, if I can interject here, one of the great virtues of using healing sound in this way is that the practitioner does participate in what I would term a feedback loop, right? You are, mm -hmm. You're keenly aware of whether the the sound is being absorbed by the, the person's body and therefore you can, you know, be rather more in tune with what's happening uh, to them in a physiological sense than perhaps with other modalities. And certainly receptivity is an essential attribute of the person who wants to become a sound healing practitioner. We go into a great deal of depth about what I would term 
maybe it's overstating the case, but the crisis that's currently happening in our culture because of our increasing reliance on visual dominated technology and what it's doing to our um, essential humanity. Yes, it's, uh, I think it's really clear, especially to those of us that did not grow up with these devices. Yeah. They're super helpful devices. And, you know, like so many tools, very helpful, but the tool can very quickly begin to shape the toolmaker. Yeah, no, it's already happened, happening, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any question of it. We've seen in our interactions with people, you know, both via, you know, the, you know electronic means and in, in personal forums and in the way people respond to the teaching situation these days, that something is being greatly eroded by this infinitely... Uh, reliable but but hardly imaginative technology that people are essentially offloading their brains into you know i've seen time and again where we have younger students who really i don't see us as teachers but just as information delivery systems and if they don't get what they want they're not happy because they have certain expectations it's like if they go to google and they type in a search string they get something back from google but if they don't get immediately get back what they want from you somehow it's your fault and this is um, this, in a sense, is turning the teacher-student relationship on its head, and we've already seen this also to a certain extent with institutions, where now institutions are treating their students like customers rather than people who are there to learn and to be passive recipients, if you will. I mean, maybe again, that's overstating the case of the information that's being imparted by people who know vastly more than they do. Yes, yes, I can remember. And this was a surprise to me. This was 20 plus years ago, being an acupuncture school. There were three schools in Seattle at that point. And so I had friends in, in different different schools. And I can remember sometimes being at parties and hearing students, second year students talk about a, a teacher and go, oh, that teacher, they don't know anything, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking to myself, how could you possibly know? You're a second year student. How would you know if a teacher knew something or not? What do you have to judge that with? And I think your point's really well taken. So much in our world these days, and even an acupuncture treatment for that matter, right? Or any medical visit, almost anything. It's a product. It's a commodity. It's a service. It's a commercial transaction. And we want to get what we think it is that we want. And yet so very, very often, especially in the healing realm, what we really need might not be something that we want. I'd like to address that. I agree with that totally. Mm. What we might need is not, not what we want. Mm -hmm. I find that with sometimes with my patients, they're looking for something. I've been working, I'm, I've been working with more and more people, though, who are coming that are interested in transformation. But when I do the facial acupuncture, they immediately want immediate results. It's like... Why, why, why can't it, why can't it be like Botox? Why, why can't it be this way? And I talk about the constitution and the time it takes and the medicine and, uh, people begin to understand that, but, and some don't, some don't understand it, uh, at all, but it is interesting as Michelangelo talked about, uh, the, the um, social media, everything is right. Facebooks, you have to look good, you, you, you have to be liked, the self-esteem. There's a lot going on, and, and the noise that we have in New York City is outrageous, you know, because we're working with sound, and um, 
it just gets higher and higher and higher. The decibels get higher and higher. And, uh, but, but you're right. It, it, people, it's good when they don't get what they think they want. Sometimes it is. Mm. Sometimes it's really helpful. It is, but sometimes it is. Well, you're going to say not? I was going to say it's usually not comfortable to not get what you want. You know, most of us as human beings, there's things we want. We want more of it. There's things we don't like. We want less of it. That often will take us to a health practitioner or to a store to go buy something or to the internet to try to get us more of what we want and less of what we don't. Yeah. And um, are you struggling with anything like that now? Oh, I'm a human being. I struggle with that kind of stuff all the time. I think it's innate to being here on this rock. I would say at this moment in my life, I'm pretty satisfied in a lot of ways. I've got a nice practice. I've got this podcast, which is really fun. I feel like I'm connected to a community and I feel like I have work that is extraordinarily satisfying. Um, and at the same time, it's very challenging and often frustrating is not the right word. Let's just say I was talking with a buddy of mine the other day and, and I forget where he got this quote, something to the effect of which is more harmful when you do a treatment in your right and you do it or you do a treatment in your wrong <laughs> in terms of the practitioner and their relationship to themselves and the patient. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it's so easy for us to go, oh, yeah, I got this stuff down. Watch me. Mm -hmm. And uh, but it's always different. It is always different. And it, mm -hmm. it also is humbling at times. It's phenomenally humbling mm -hmm. on, a, on a regular basis, I have found. I think that's where the spirit is. And that's where the growth, not only for the patient, but for the practitioner is. Mm -hmm. And tell us more about that. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, sometimes I think I know um, that I think I'm helping the person and it doesn't happen that way. I, I actually invite not being right. I want to not hurt anybody or harm anybody. I mean, but at the same time, not being, not turning out the way you expect it to is a very big healing experience for both of us. And I, we have things that happen all the time when we're teaching. I mean, uh, things are turned upside down, not only in the private practice, you know, uh, emotions, letting go, right? We, we, do you want to talk about some of these? Uh... Let's see. Uh, probably one of the most interesting things that happened not so long ago was we actually had a case of temporary blindness that occurred in in one of our seminars. We were teaching in uh, a, a major acupuncture school in LA and uh, facial acupuncture, uh, treatment protocols um, that use motor and trigger points, but working on the face. And uh, mm -hmm. we had a couple of, couple of practitioners from the Arizona area who were up in the front of this very large class. We had about 40 odd people and they were doing what one would essentially term a routine treatment of lines in, in the glabellar crease, you know, uh, between the brows and using mm -hmm. the corrugator muscle and everything going, you know, more or less as one would expect. And, uh, the, the, uh, the practitioner is getting ready to finish the treatment when the patient reports to her that she can't see that she's opened her eyes after she's worked on this uh, line and that all she can see is a wash of white. So now, 
both of us in our in our different ways based on, on both our experience and also our intuitive reading of the thing immediately felt separately that this was a major opening of the visionary center the third eye uh, knowing this person as we did and, and knowing what her issues might have been but still a bit disconcerting in a oh yeah in a clinical situation to have that come up uh, uh, Mary Elizabeth wants to weigh in here. I told her not to open her eyes. I said, you keep your eyes closed. Let's do gallbladder 37, which is the empirical point. <laughs> the empirical for eye not working. Yeah, yeah, hopefully it will work. Uh, it's empirical for not only uh, visual, you know, seeing. It's empirical for your inner sight as well. Mm -hmm. And so... She was a good girl. She didn't open her eyes, and we created these gem elixirs. And Michelangelo is going to tell you about those. Right now, so here's the irrational component. All right, all right. Now, I I didn't tell you at 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 earlier that when I decided I wanted to become an astrologer, I immediately felt intuitively that I should become a medical astrologer. So, medical astrology is my specialty, although I, I do other things. And as as a medical astrologer, because of my involvement with the Akitonic system, which in a sense merges both the theory and practice of Oriental medicine as well, because the tuning forks themselves are planetary, the whole edifice of Western astrological medicine, which is the medicine that predates that of the modern era, the allopathic medicine that we now have, I've become keenly attuned to various planetary significances when they arrive. And I knew from my own more than nodding acquaintance with with Chinese medicine at this point that uh, wood opens to the eyes. Now, mm -hmm. there's a whole system of uh, planetary correspondences in um, the Ling Shu, which associate the five planets that the ancient Chinese were aware of with the five elements. And in that system, Odd, oddly enough, oddly enough, oddly, oddly enough, why do you say oddly? oddly enough? I, it's I'm teasing. Okay. <laughs> it would log logically, <laughs> right? Of course, there would be five planets to go with the five phases. Yeah. Well, they they saw the sun and the moon. They said, oh, yes, well, the sun is the Taiyang and the moon is the Taiyin. So they, mm. they knew there were seven objects that orbited the Earth. There's the other irrational bit. Uh, but they didn't see the sun and the moon as relating to the five elements. So in that five element schema, Jupiter relates to wood. And as Mary Elizabeth started to tell you, we've created a whole line of, of planetary gem elixirs, which are essentially distillations of the crystalline essence of stones that are used uh, for therapeutic purposes. So I said, in addition to them doing gallbladder 37, I said, let's give her the Jupiter gem elixir because Jupiter not only relates to wood, but through its rulership of the sign Sagittarius in Western astrology, it also relates to similar types of things, expansion of outlook, uh, spiritual vision versus earthly concerns, things of this nature. So the synergy of those two things then produced the effect that we expected it would, was, was that her case of temporary blindness went away. When we had to give her some time and I had to to feel intuitively when she should open her eyes. And I was mm -hmm. crossing my fingers that she would be able to see something. And yeah, you knew she would. I knew. So she opened her eyes and she said, Oh my goodness, I don't need my glasses. That was it. That was it. She didn't, she didn't need her glasses. She said, uh, she said, I was terrified. I didn't know what was going on, but we told her to be quiet and just lie there and not open her eyes yet. And, uh, yes. And after that, she also went into seeing auras. She, for the first time in her life, she started her third eye or crown opened and she started seeing colors. And this is a very grounded, practical woman. 
and uh, that'd be a helpful thing to have in clinic, huh? Yes, to be able to see all of that. <laughs> anyway, we're not making this up. It was unbelievable. So, so this this brings me around to I think Michelangelo here a few minutes ago used the word transformation. Mm-hmm. I hear this word being tossed around a lot, mm-hmm. right? Usually in a good sense, it's like, oh yeah, this is all about transformation. I don't know about you guys, and I don't know about the people listening, but here's what I know about transformation in my life. When transformation is up, shit is falling apart. Mm-hmm. It's usually a mess. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where there's a certain part of the mind, I think, at least for myself, that says, oh yeah, transformation, that sounds great. I want to transform this. But the actual process that you go through I suspect is usually difficult. I'd love to get your guys's perspective on this about genuine, like you just spoke about transformative experiences where something happens, it's non-ordinary. And then on the other side of it, it's not the same as when you left. Is there ever a way to make that journey without some sense of disruption? I don't think so. Not, not in, not in human form as we know it now. In my own experience, I've gone through a lot of transformation, and it, it's like chaotic, mm-hmm. because nothing that we knew, everything we hung on to, everything we thought we, we thought we knew, we don't, and it it shifts and changes, and it and not only affects the mind, it affects the body, it affects the spirit, and uh, I I see that a lot in in my patients. But it won't happen unless you're ready to go there. There's no way you can force that on anyone or or yourself, in my experience. Well, my my sense is on occasion the universe will grab you by the scruff of the neck and say, here's where we're going. Mm-hmm. But that's but but that's more the universe. On a more practical level, especially as practitioners, especially as we work with people who are they genuinely have come to us because they want to change. Mm-hmm. But are they really up for that kind of change? And are there signs that you can see that, ooh, maybe this is coming, or does it always come by surprise? And when it does show up, how do you work your patients through it? Oh, that's a good question. There are lots of questions there. Um, yeah, a I, lot. I'll shut up now. No, let you roll. please don't. I, I've been working more and more with that with people. Of course, I've been there myself. If I hadn't gone there and keep going there, I wouldn't be able to be grounded enough in transformation to work with that with my patients and the emotions that happen. One of the things I do know is that this will not happen with your patient or my patient unless they're ready. Mm -hmm. I have people remember being violated. They push Mm -hmm. down for years. Have you had that experience? They have a memory, suddenly the cellular memory, especially when when I'm using the eight extraordinary meridians in my treatments. Yeah, there are moments people have something happen and and they basically say something to the effect of, it's all different now. Mm. And that's all they say? Sometimes they say more. Mm. Um, Usually they're in a bit of a state where being really verbal about their experience is difficult because they've been through a deep emotional psycho-emotional mm-hmm. experience. And, and it's hard to put words on those unless you're like a roomy class poet. Mm-hmm. Or Hafiz or somebody like that. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree with you. I, when a per- person is going through that, it's emotional. Things break up. 
uh, emotions, crying, uh, letting go. Uh, I've been working with a young woman now who was originally adopted, and she has gone through a lot of pain around being adopted and, 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 and not knows who her birth mother is, but feels that disconnection from prenatal chi to postnatal chi. She, mm. That coming in and out of the womb, she doesn't feel. Uh, we've been working for a while, and she is, and, and we usually sit down and have a talk first. Where are you now? Where are you? I have her. She expresses herself. This is one patient. And uh, she is starting to realize that there are certain emotions that are coming up and th certain things are shifting and changing. Maybe not the day I have the treatment with her, but when she comes back or she texts me or she emails me and lets me know that she's had an aha or she's going through this pain, um, she comes around to the other side. I'm there facilitating. I'm there being as grounded and being as present as possible. And mm -hmm. when the emotions come up, they feel safe because I've learned how to have a groundedness and a safe container for them to let go if they want to. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, you know, you were just talking a moment ago about these kinds of experiences will happen when the patient's ready. They won't happen before the patient's ready. I suspect there is another piece of it, which is, is it safe enough in our presence for that to unfold as well? That's a good question. And it won't happen unless they feel safe in mm -hmm. our presence, in my experience. I suspect you're right about that. I I sometimes think it's very difficult to tell the difference between a breakdown and a breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Maybe the breakdown is a precursor to a breakthrough. Not always, though. Not always. Not always. I mean, there was a guy back in, I think, the 70s, R.D. Lang in uh, Great Britain, who psychotherapist who, who really looked at those kind of very extreme states as um, sort of spiritual emergences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know about our delay. Yeah, Michael is going to weigh in. Yeah, yeah Stanislav Grof wrote a whole book called Spiritual Emergency in which he talked about that. And it's, it's interesting you should mention Lang because 
Uh, I just wrote a, a, an article for myself. I write astrological essays and I published a book recently about comedians and depression. And uh, I just picked four, Robin Williams, um, Jim Carrey, uh, Stephen Fry, and uh, Wayne Brady. And uh, all of them have struggled with depression. Um, and But Robin Williams obviously didn't make it through his struggles. And of course he got in a sense a virtual death sentence when he was revealed that he had Louis body dementia or they thought he did. Uh, Stephen Fry had a nervous breakdown. He's gone on and, and done a whole uh, documentary series on you know clinical depression. And uh, Jim Carrey has been making some really weird statements in recently and has obviously left the whole Hollywood persona behind and presumably is, is trying to find himself. And you don't really know based on what he's saying, whether he, he is sort of, you know, experiencing a, a spiritual awakening or if he's going to crack up. And then Wayne Brady, the last person anybody would think would have problems with depression, had a, a, a nervous breakdown, which he was courageous enough to come forward and, and admit, you know, on television, not long after Robin Williams died, because he realized that it was time somebody came forward and said something. But all of them struggled with it. And it really is a question, I think, of their level of consciousness, you know, uh, whether they have the, they have, are willing to work through it and come out the other side. I mean, I think Lang, however discredited he may have been in, in recent years, was definitely on to something. You know, uh, there is a, a question of spiritual emergence that has to occur. And sometimes the persona is simply not willing to let go to the degree that, you know, as the Jungians would say, the self can emerge in a more mm. complete way. This this brings up for me, you know, we're talking about modern society, the computers in our hand that we're downloading our brain to, the way our world moves so fast, how everything's become a uh, commercial transaction. And, and as this conversation has moved into what we're talking about now with breakdowns and breakthroughs and a bit of a spiritual sense and such, it makes me wonder about the loss that we've had in our culture of certain uh, rites of passage, certain mm -hmm. transitions that, you know, is recognized that between like this age roughly and that age roughly, there's going to be some changes that happen. This is how human beings work, right? And we have different phases of this. The uh, Neijing talks about the cycle of eight for women and seven for men. Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? You know, it's backwards. Yeah, I, I always mess that up. Yeah. We would love to have eight instead of seven. <laughs> <laughs> Continue. But I, I'd love to get your thoughts on rites of passage and if that somehow figures into your work or if you think about that or just kind of where you are with that. Uh, I know Michelangelo has something to say about that. Uh, I, I find that uh, I agree with you. Um, without a rite of passage, there's no marker for um, the child or the adult to know that they've gone into a place, let's say, in Menage or uh, when a young woman has her menses. Nobody does anything anymore. I've done rituals with my goddaughter and my dear friend with her daughter so that she felt she had gone through that rite of passage. I certainly never had it. And I think mm -hmm. uh, maybe the bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs are good for that. And when you're 13 or 12 or 13, that is a rite of passage. But um, uh, growing up in the Midwest in a very, what can I say, um, grounded, hardworking 
family. Um, we never had those uh, rites of passage. Uh, I didn't. Going on from there to being a young adult, the rite of passage for me was going to the university. But there was mm-hmm. no big celebration of that. And and then moving on, you, Michelangelo will talk about it in a minute, but then you get into your late, into your 30s, 20s, and 30s. There's another rite of passage. And then when you're about ready to be 40, I have uh, patients come to me and look in the mirror and say, what happened to me? I look old. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's what they see. They don't see the light in their eyes. They don't see the shen. They don't see uh, the fact that they have um, crow's feet, you know, twinkle lines around their eyes that they've laughed. There's, yeah, you you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean about that because I have women say the same thing. Oh, look at these lines around my eyes. And I go, that's because you smile. (laughs) Being the more, you know, the face being the most emotional part of the body Think. God, we can express ourselves except if we inject ourselves with Botox and then nothing moves. So don't get me started on that one and that neurotoxin that people are putting into the systems. But then you then you go on further and uh, after the 40s, you start going, uh, angling oneself toward 50. That's usually the time when my patients come in and say, my husband just left me for a younger woman. I said, with a little red sports car, right? Very, <laughs> yes. But I work with that, and, and uh, there, there's, I've, there's been amazing shifts. People get through that, but when you get close to 50, people feel like they're really old and they're invisible. I don't know about men, but women feel invisible, like they don't matter. I can remember, this is years ago when I was still living in Seattle, and I remember a, a woman that I was treating uh, who was working in you know some pretty good sized corporation, and she was talking about how men can age basically any way they want, and they're still going to keep their power in that structure. Women have to age in a certain kind of way and keep a certain kind of um, I'm going to call it conventional beauty, mm-hmm. or they're not going to have the same opportunities that they would have had ten years prior. And I remember her coming, you know, talking to me in acu- you know, my acupuncture clinic about, you know, what can you do to help me look younger? Because it, it's not that I'm vain. It's that if I want to keep my job and work at the level that I'm working at, I need to look a certain way. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so they feel that pressure. I've had men come to me and say that. Um, mm. I look tired. I look old. They're going, to, they're going to fire me if I don't look better. And I've worked with men that way too. I've I, I have Broadway Broadway actors and actors. Oh well, gosh, that's yeah. a whole other thing. You know? That's a whole different rarefied world. Yes, of course. And then, of course, heading into the '60s, people suddenly you're over the hill, and going into the '70s, then oh, you're 150 years old to some people. But more than that, there are rites of passage. There are times that. There are times in our life that it, it, it's very important to feel that shift and to celebrate. And uh, I think, uh, do you ever do you ever work with your patients that way with rites of passage, being aware of it, having them aware of it? I don't think so. Not not consciously. I mean, maybe on occasion, if there's a wedding or if there's a death or you know something that's big and they're being rocked by something big mm-hmm. and they feel like they're broken, mm-hmm. but the thing that, that they think is wrong with them is actually the thing that's right with them. Aha. Uh-huh. 
in that case, I, I wouldn't say that I have thought about it in terms of working with a rite of passage. Although as we're having this conversation, I'm beginning to think, oh, maybe actually that's what I'm doing and I'll keep an eye out for it. As, as my clinical work unfolds, there are times when people come to me and they feel broken about something. Again, because they think there's something wrong with them, mm -hmm. but that thing that they think is wrong is actually a thing about them that's right. So let me give you an example. A woman who says, I'm depressed. I've been depressed for four months. It's like, well, what's going on? My mother died four months ago. And I'm thinking, you're supposed to be kind of depressed, <laughs> right? You're, you're supposed to feel kind of broken. If you're not feeling a little bit lost four months after your mother passing, that would actually be the bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so maybe there is something about rites of passage in those moments. I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. I'm going to start looking for it and seeing if it might show up. I, I want to give you to Michelangelo. He's going to talk to you about rites of passage astrologically, which are great. great. Yeah. Um, again, we're veering into the irrational. <laughs> so for those of you out there that are Yes. firmly entrenched in your rationality. <laughs> I apologize in advance. Uh, That's okay. They'll, they'll just have to buckle up. <laughs> um, I just want to say that one of the great virtues of astrology is that it shows us how we're, our lives are evolving against the ongoing backdrop of, of planetary motion. And that, you know, based on the orbital cycles of the planets, there are definitely periods of, of time in our lives when we are for want of a better term, going to be subjected to transformational kinds of energies. Mary Elizabeth sort of alluded to that in earlier, particularly most people are, you know, dimly aware of the Saturn return that ends, that comes around at the end of the twenties, around age 28, 29. Now, without wanting to, you know, digress hugely into astrological symbolism, Saturn has a great deal to do with our accommodations to the physical world. You know, our choice of career, comfort with, with manifestation, all of these types of things. And, Usually when that transit happens, there's something has to shift, you know, because there's a, a sense that whatever has been comfortable to that point, it no longer serves one's higher purpose. And so therefore, often people do have a, a period where they become quite frustrated and depressed. You know, I used to give tarot readings in the West Village and I would, you know, encounter these young 20-somethings who were working for Fortune 500 companies. And they would come in and I would talk to them about their, their inner lives through the tarot. Again, more rationality. Mm. Most of them had no idea what I was talking about because essentially they were, they were utterly fixated on the outer world. In other words, they went to work as an analyst for Payne Weber or, you know, name your investment bank of your choice. They're pulling down six figures a year, working like dogs. And they think, oh, this is great. I'm going to become, you know, first I'm going to become a senior vice president, then I'll become a managing director and blah, blah, blah. But some of them don't make that transition. You know, they get to a point where they would feel that that was soul sucking work. Mm -hmm. And that they wanted more from life. And that usually happens around the Saturn return. And, you know, and then at midlife, there's the Uranus opposition. That also, to a certain extent, is about connecting in a more profound way with one's uh, inner self. Again, moving away from outer accomplishment toward the cultivation of the life of the spirit. Jung certainly felt that that was appropriate at midlife. And the Vedic traditions also say that the first half of life should be for, you know, working on the material world and the second half should be about you know evolution of the spirit 
astrology can help people identify these these times in their life when they may be subjected to these types of transformative energies and this it, to me is one of its great virtues i mean i've seen it time and again i've i've looked at the the life cycles of, of various celebrities and seen how they've gone through periods where their lives just fell apart and there's absolutely no reason for it except that on some level they're not connected to themselves and and the pursuit of fame and and wealth and all these things is it really what they wanted? They just thought they did. And you can just see how their lives are boom and bust depending on what's going on. So for example, Wayne Brady, to return to him, had his nervous breakdown during his Uranus opposition on a day when it was almost exact. So to me, there's nothing coincidental about that. That is uh, reflective of his participation in in the evolution of the universe for one of a bit. Right on time. Yeah, right on time. Yeah. Speaking of time, how are we doing? Well, I, I'm just looking at the time myself and, and thinking these usually run roughly an hour, mm. which is which is kind of a sweet spot. So mm. here's what I'm thinking, because this has been utterly delightful. I'd actually like to learn more about the vibrational stuff that you're doing. Absolutely. But I think what I'd like to do is uh, invite you back to a part two and we can uh, oh, great. get into some of this other stuff. How does that sound? That sounds awesome. I, you guys up for that? Yeah. Yeah, no, sure, Mike. We really yeah, enjoy, we'll we'll I really that. enjoy talking with you. We both do. You're very interesting. Fun. It's fun and I'm learning a lot. Well, that's why I do these conversations because generally speaking, something shows up. <laughs> that we didn't know at the beginning. What sh has shown up for you? <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're like a great podcast host. <laughs> I'm I'm learning from a great host already. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to hear something really funny? Yeah, sure. Do you, do you know how I learned how to be a podcast host? No. By talking to my patients. Ah. This me me doing what I do here on the podcast mm -hmm. is no different than what I do sitting with my patients in my clinic. Ask questions. I just ask questions. Sure. And, and earlier you were talking about being receptive. Mm -hmm. um, it's taken me a long, long time to develop that because I always think I'm supposed to do something for God's sake. <laughs> and, and there is a place for doing. There absolutely is a place for doing. I find that because human beings are so complex, if I can first know what it is that my patients really need and what they're asking for, mm -hmm. then I make my life easier and their life better by just giving them that. Mm -hmm. But of course, that means you have to be receptive enough to know what is it that they're actually asking for? Because usually the thing that people come in and say, here's what I want, when they write it on their health history form is not necessarily what they're really looking to get. I think that's quite profound. I, I'd like to explore that further in our next Let's do. podcast as well. Let's do. So, but back to the thing about what I've gotten out of this, the, uh, there's this delightful impish part of myself that says, oh, they're irrational. Yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing how that unfolds some more. <laughs> Oh, God. oh, that's great. I mean, I think that it's really wonderful to be able to embrace, you know, uh, this, this aspect of ourself that isn't so bound by convention. I always used to consider myself um, when I was younger to be an intelligent person with intellectual uh, 
pretensions. Uh, but, mm. uh, you know, my life veered off into the arts. You know, I became an opera singer and uh, that was a great passion for many years. And then after we met and I had really my own crisis of spiritual emergency, I realized that there were these other aspects of myself that most people would look at me and say, you're nuts. How can you possibly believe that there's anything to it? People that I greatly respect, Stephen Fry, for example, a brilliant man, but he has such utter contempt for the things that I do, for astrology, for tarot. And I, and I think, well, that's all, that's all very well and good. But for me, this is what's made my life complete, is being able to embrace this aspect of myself. And as a man... That's also, you know, only to these days, only 25% of all astrologers are men. So there's a corrective balance, I think, in, in embracing the, the intuitive uh, and irrational way of viewing the world that I think is something that should be ongoing. It's interesting. I suspect there's the same mix between sexes in the Chinese medicine world here in the West. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Mary Elizabeth, what about you? What's, what's been, uh, what's touched you here today? Community, mm -hmm. uh, communication, free flow of heart, questions, mind, spirit, a sense of not even thinking about or worrying about uh, speaking with someone else, being comfortable in this uh, exploration of body, mind, spirit. What touches me is a, a, a communion that we've had together today. Ah. Touched me very deeply. Thank you. Well, friends, this has been an absolute delight, and uh, I'm looking forward to our part two. Uh, we also... Likewise. likewise. And uh, keep that impish uh, sense of humor. It's very charming. <laughs> and keep being receptive and listening. We, we go into a great deal mm -hmm. about that in our book, about how essential it is to our humanity and, and to not have an agenda when you're talking to people and just be in the moment. Absolutely. Ooh, that sounds wonderful. Hey, when's that book coming out? Uh, March 2020, Singing Dragon, UK, Vibrational Acupuncture, Integrating Tuning Forks with Needles. The first one out like that. I look forward to meeting you uh, in, on a physical plane at some point. Great. Okay. I'll talk with you then. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks a lot. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.